0: Hi, my name is Kimberly Chapman, and I'm a physician who practices genetics and metabolism. I practice at Children's National Hospital and the Children's National Rare Disease Institute. I am certified in internal medicine, pediatrics, and clinical genetics, and clinical biochemical genetics, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. biggest pet peeve in my space is individuals who talk about bad genetics or evil genetics and good genetics, because, you know, genetics is just genetics and we shouldn't put an ethical connotation on our genetics. Now, certainly there's some genetics that put us at risk for other diseases, but every single one of us are at risk for nine to 15 disorders based on our genetics. On the low end, we may be at risk for many more diseases. And so somebody that talks about bad genes Versus good genes doesn't understand that we all have, quote, bad genes and, quote, good genes. And so my biggest concern is people that give that ethical dilemma to something that we have no control over.
1: Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth. Doctor Neil Smoller. Happy birthday to us! Happy singing in the back. Happy birthday to us! So today is our 52nd week podcasting, and for you lovely folks at home, that means we turn one years old. Is it technically today, or is that next week? Am I one of those idiots that's like, "Oh, well, it's not technically a decade." Even though it's 2020, the, the decade actually starts next year. No, it, it actually doesn't. It's constantly a new decade, first of all. And second of all, uh, yeah, it starts at zero. So anyway, but anyway, we're we're established now and we're having lots of fun podcasting for you great folks. Dana filled out this beautiful graphic highlighting all of our different guests from the past year. So check that out at our podcast page, WoodstockVitamins.com slash podcast. And then also on my site, DrNeilSmoller.com, you click on the podcast link. And my Facebook page will have that as of today as well. I am pretty proud of what we've been able to do here. We've interviewed lots of real experts on relevant topics. I think that the content's been pretty high quality, especially for a little, little guy out of Woodstock here. My, you know, My mission is to address the myths of misinformation in the wellness space, and I think we've done a good job calling out the BS on a lot of the different stuff. So there's more to come for the next 52 episodes, for sure. I saved this interview to make it my 52nd on purpose because our feature conversation is with Dr. Kimberly Chapman. Kimberly is an associate professor with tenure of pediatrics and systems biology at the George Washington Medical School and Health Sciences Center, but she's also an attending geneticist and metabolist at the Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., and part of the Children's National Rare Disease Institute. She's board certified in pediatrics, internal medicine, clinical genetics, and clinical biochemical genetics. Big shoot, right? (laughs) She's a big shoot. Uh, yeah, so she's excellent. And so her expertise is pretty profound and we'll talk, you'll get that feeling totally when, when you listen to her talk. So after the episode though, we'll do Neil's unhealthy habits. So stick around for that. Dr. Chapman's expertise and the idea of the myth that we debunk here, one that's pretty pervasive, embody what I had envisioned the show would be, you know, like a couple years back when I dreamed up doing a podcast, I said, this is what I would want it to be. I want renowned experts in their field coming on and talking about the BS of the natural products industry and and really kind of helping people understand what's real. And this episode, I feel, is a climax of that so far. And I'm really hoping that you'll, you'll like it. So here's a fair warning, though. Our producer, Dana, told me there's some heavy science stuff in this for y'all non-medical folk listening. So don't lose the forest for the trees. There's plenty of stuff to grab onto. Don't try to get on all the nuancy, jargony stuff. Okay, don't worry about that. I've been on a search for geneticist to come on and debunk myths for a while. Around a few things. First and foremost, I hate this MTHFR stuff. So what is that besides a way to spell Samuel Jackson's most favorite word without values, you ask? (laughs) That's a funny joke. It is an enzyme that is being blamed on the regular for all of life's problems. Most respectable professionals, of course, aren't doing so. It's mostly the charlatan or those who don't understand genetics and just want to ride a money-making trend. So MTHFR is an enzyme, and it just helps us change folic acid into the forms our body can use. And it's complicated and such, and we kind of get into it, and you will talk about it. But at-home genetic testing allows us to get access to our MTHFR activity level. So we can see now if our enzyme works 100%, 10%, Seventy percent, right? We can see those different levels. So many people do this, they'll see something horrifying. Their MTHFR <laughs> isn't it funny? Their MTHFR isn't working efficiently, just like the natural path they spend thousand dollars on told them. Well, guess what? Almost none of us have an enzyme that works efficiently. And so I would hope that you would read more about this, especially from our perspective, debunking all of the nonsense. I wrote an article on the subject. It's actually over 20,000 reads now. A lot of people have checked it out. It ranks pretty highly when you look at MTHFR and SCAM. So you go to WoodstockVitamins.com, just type in MTHFR in the search bar. It's excellent, and it it kind of debunks all the myths around it. So you'll definitely want to check that out either before or after you listen to this full episode. So Dr. Chapman is here to talk about all that because that's what she's an expert in. Her expertise is in that enzyme and the whole system surrounding it. And, you know, we say MTHFR is a real problem But the charlatans are using it as a scapegoat and they take your money for that quote-unquote expertise and then they sell you a bunch of garbage products you don't need. And then the second reason that I had her on is we wanted to talk about genetics in general. The ability to do at-home testing seems like an amazing breakthrough to all of us, but Dr. Chapman, as a professional geneticist, tells us what we really should be thinking about with all of that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And here's Dr. Chapman talking about at-home genetics and genetic testing in general. Let's start with the consumer-level understanding of genetics. Now, what I've said in my articles and such is that people people are excited because we've been told for the last 20 or 30 years that all these breakthroughs are happening with genes and we're getting such great insight and all of the the future applications of it, right? And so now we have some stuff we can get our hand on, hands on. Remember that stuff we talked about in the 80s about being able to uh, know what kind of medicines would be best for you? We have some of that right now, you know? Yeah,
0: we finally got to that point.
1: Right. I think
0: it's important to really kind of start with, let's remember that uh, the cause of Down syndrome, which is an extra chromosome 21, was first described in 1947. mm You know, and so we didn't realize that we had 46 chromosomes until the late 40s, early 50s. And the progress that's happened is unbelievable. So in 1988, uh, we started the Human Genome Project, and this was sequencing through human genome. I can remember a talk in 1990 given by Cantor, who was the head of the Genome Project, who said, I have no idea how we're going to keep track of all of this information. <laughs> all right. And so I think that's really important and it's also important to realize we just celebrated the 25th anniversary for the first human gene to be sequenced that's related to c- disease, cystic fibrosis. Mm. Like let's let's put that in perspective. There's right. individuals that will be listening to this that are not 25 years old, but I think the vast majority of individuals will be a little bit older than that. And that's occurred within our lifespan.
1: Right. And, and so like, basically calm down (laughs) is (laughs) what we should say to everybody. Chill, chill. Um, because what's, what we have to understand is very exciting and the potential is, you know, limitless. I'm sure it's what drives your passion for what you do, you know, all of the potential here. But like the idea that now the, cons- the these businesses can get their hands on, uh, on stuff and they can get their hands on some basic technology and then they can sell people tests and then those tests can be used to tell a story, whether that story is clinically relevant or not. That's the part that bugs me the most because it's, you know, it's deceptive, you know? I,
0: I think it's concerning to us because the information is only as good as the interpretation. And let's remember that there's about 24, we have about 24,000 genes. We only know the function of about 12,000. Right. And I can only clinically test for about four to 5,000 of them. Right. And so understanding what the implications of certain things were just at the infancy. We'll know so much more in five years. We'll know so much more in 10 years. And uh, direct-to-consumer stuff is sometimes in the field, we call it recreational genetics because Mm. the interpretation is the challenge. Now, clearly, there's certain genetic changes that put you at risk for certain disorders. But there's a lot of things where... You may be at risk. You may not be at risk. It may be a complex trait where you need multiple genetic changes and environmental exposure to see the phenotype or the way that somebody expresses it. Um, And so there's only a handful of things, as you know, that are genetic variants that change our pharmacogenetics, so how we respond to drugs. And we're still trying to figure that one out.
1: Right and we had a guest on the podcast and he talked about a case where he he, because he's a pain management doctor so he uses the information about the cytochrome P450 enzymes to make a smarter first choice. And even him, and he's a super smart guy, he was getting all excited about the idea that he was able to fix this case very quickly once he had that information. But I had to kind of like rein in a little bit, like no, all that did was give you a smarter starting place, that information, and then you still had to experiment. You still had to do all the clinical stuff. It just started you out in a little smaller space.
0: And I think that's really important that it gets you a start. Because we can only look at what we know. If you don't know 50% of the genetics, there's a lot of things you can't look at. And what we don't know is how things interact with each other. So if you think of genetics as being the blueprint that's going to make you the way that you are, and then you think of what your genes do and they make protein, And they make regulatory factors. And these things all work in pathways or systems. And each piece of that system impacts the end product. And so you're really looking at how do these systems balance? How does the flow through a particular system end at the end? And so it's much more challenging. And then that's genetics just at the baseline. And then how do you regulate those genetics? So we have about a third of the genes that they predicted we would have looking at lower organisms. And the difference is we regulate our genes in a very complicated manner compared to some of the lower organisms.
1: Right. And so along these thoughts, because this kind of plays on a lot of the fear that's being stoked right now. The idea that if you have a genetic variant or some sort of abnormality and it, it says like your enzyme pathway is only functioning at 40%, you know, the idea that people need to hear from you, I think that our bodies don't work at a hundred percent, right? Ever. And, and Right. Never. (laughs) So can you kind of elaborate on that? Because you you just said it, but I would like you to kind of say it in a different way because people really need to understand that when they do these tests and it says that they're only at 40% or 50% or something like that, they have to understand that that's normal and all of it is made for that.
0: So I'm going to put on my metabolic hat. So metabolism in my world is how a cell makes energy, builds things or takes out the trash on the very cellular level. This is a little different than an endocrinologist idea of met- metabolic disease. And so our cells have to make energy. And uh, there's a lot of steps to making energy. Um, but if you look at some of the disorders that come out of um, like metabolism in which we're looking for a genetic change in a single enzyme, which impacts a single gene. And probably the most common one is like PKU. So phenylketonuria. So this is the one that most people know because if you look at the back of a diet soda can, it says caution contains phenylalanine. Um, It is also the disorder that newborn screening in the United States was started on a little over 50 years ago. So in PKU, individuals accumulate an amino acid, a phenylalanine, and are unable to make an amino acid called tyrosine. And phenylalanine over a long period of time is bad for the brain. Individuals with PKU in the most classical form, so the type that you learn in school, the type that if you Google it, you will see, have zero enzyme activity. Individuals who are carriers of PKU have 50% enzyme activity. They don't have the disease. Right. Because they have one change and you need to have a change in both of your genetic copies. Right. 50% of any one step is totally fine because we're all carriers for probably 200 disorders of this type. And so, like, if it caused disease, then that would be a problem. In fact, in most of my single gene metabolic disorders, most individuals do not have symptoms until they get less less than 5% of enzyme activities. Now, there's a few exceptions, but less than 5% is kind of where we start saying Mm, this is it. There's a variant of PKU in which individuals could have symptoms, but in most cases never do, and they have 25 percent enzyme activity, and the only time that they may have symptoms as, is as a baby, because their liver doesn't work, none of their enzymes are 100 percent, no matter what. So baby and baby liver enzymes are, don't work quite as well as even. Six-month-olds, or twelve-month-olds, or adults. So, I and I use that one because that's the one kind of metabolic disease most people have heard of. Right. Just because it's been around the longest, and you see it on the back of diet soda cans. When we start talking about other metabolic disorders, and I know we're going to get there, um, those are disorders people are much less likely to have heard about.
1: Right. Right. They're they're not as popular yet. So until some internet we makes them popular because he wants to make a million bucks so i mean the and just so that's great that's an excellent example very real life application and the the idea that i always try to repeat back to people there's two of them one like how would we have freaking survived if we need a hundred percent functioning like right so like evolution <laughs> exactly just weeded us out a million years ago anybody that needed a hundred percent function they're dead <laughs> or, yeah, or you. if
0: you need a hundred percent production of from that gene product mm-hmm. you would never be born if you didn't have it yes you would never have developed we would have been weeded out but you would have never developed either so you wouldn't be here talking to me
1: right and the other one is a more pragmatic example. The idea, like a lot of people that are into this stuff, they go to work in corporations and there is no corporation working at a hundred percent. Most of the, their coworkers are putting in a good like solid hour worth of work a day, you know, like a 10, 20% and that business is moving, you know? So <laughs> most human systems can deal with a little bit of inefficiency.
0: And it's totally okay that different of systems are a little bit in, uh, are a little bit less than perfect um, because that gives us some flexibility. Of course. And uh, genetic flexibility is really important.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And, you know, who said that not being 100% isn't protective? Well, there's many disorders in which being a carrier, so having 50%, is actually protective in certain environments. Interesting. So the, the most common thing would be sickle cell. So individuals who are carriers for sickle cell um, are do not get infected by malaria.
1: Wow. I had no idea.
0: So that's a protection. And that's the reason why that variation has come through the population and survives within the population.
1: Because it's a protection that was kind of built in and... Well, it's a protection
0: that developed and then the environment selected for that protection.
1: Right.
0: And so, you know, there's a few metabolic diseases out there where probably... The common mutation that we see in the population or the common variant, usually mutation, because it's usually less than 1% of the population, Mm -hmm. um, is actually selected for in the carrier state. So again, PKU, there's a common variant we see in the Caucasians that seems to have been selected for during the great death. So being a carrier for that variant seemed to be protective.
1: Wow. So here's a question that will kind of set up our later conversation as well. So if you are not at a 100 percent, as everybody's kind of striving for, and, and, and you know for some silly reason, um, could being less efficient? Create a poorer quality of life for people. So, in the examples that you're giving, so if somebody's a carrier, fifty percent, or they have like a twenty-five percent, could their quality of life be affected because of that genetic variant, or is it really, truly, it just has to bubble up to a point, and then it the system breaks and it becomes a problem?
0: So, we don't think that carriers for any of our disorders have a change in their health. Mm-hmm. How's that?
1: That's perfect. Um, yeah.
0: It, it, there's a few weird exceptions to that, but in general, the feeling is being a carrier doesn't impact your health.
1: Good. Cause you know, I'm, I'm walking you through this like a lawyer, obviously. So, so the, the consumers are out there, they're doing this test. And, and what I like to teach people is that this is entertainment. You know, this recreational is really,
0: genec- genetics. recreational, it's recreational genetics. genetics.
1: It's totally, it's totally entertainment. That's a great word. I can't wait to use it in our new blog. So the, I'm looking at a couple of these different things as I'm doing research for my, my, my new rant. I do a monthly rant. That's pretty funny, but anyway. So uh, one of them was telling people that the caffeine sensitivity was going to be 32% in them based on their genetic testing.
0: <laughs> I'm not totally sure that you can make that prediction. Of course because, you can,
1: right? <laughs> so
0: let's talk a little bit about how they start out. So if we're not talking about real things that we know are pathologic changes, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: okay, Um, so every one of us have these little sections in our genome that could be one thing or the other, so an A or a T, a C or a G, these are called polymorphisms. A polymorphism is defined as being seen in the population at greater than 5%, so any population, So a lot of these places will look at our polymorphisms, and these are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or our SNPs, S-N-P, and they'll look at 2 million of them,
1: Mm.
0: and they'll sequence us through these 2 million SNPs. And there have been studies which look at whether certain SNPs put you at risk for certain disorders looking at individuals with this disorder and individuals who do not have this disorder? And are you more likely to have particular SNPs to do these disorders? And so there's a number of SNPs that are associated with disorder. So makes you more likely or less likely to develop a particular thing. And the problem with this is we don't know how much an individual SNP puts you at risk for developing X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. This is putting aside the pathologic, Mm -hmm. uh, the known pathologic SNPs. And so what they're doing is they're saying, oh, you have these SNPs, this is where your caffeine metabolism is going to be. The problem is, as I said, we don't know how big each of these steps are and how big they are towards that versus against that so if you think of it as a threshold you have to reach that threshold we don't know how big the steps towards and away from that threshold
1: are so in other words, it's absolutely ridiculous that they can come out with these consum- And the I don't yeah, know
0: how they do the math.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the, on the same test, the the next line was lactose intolerance risk percentage. And I always thought you would just drink milk and see if it causes diarrhea. I mean, that that's what I thought. <laughs> I didn't think that you needed to do a genetic test for that.
0: Well, so, yeah, that's usually how we clinically make the diagnosis, right? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: um, but remember that lactose is actually... Lactose is an interesting thing because we are set up to turn off our lactase, which breaks down lactose in our GI tract after we're weaned.
1: Really? It's
0: a variant in the promoter that allows you to continue to make lactate lactase mm-hmm. to break down lactose. Um, so, Yeah. So that's actually interesting because the question is do you have the variant? Do you not have the variant? And right. there's a lot of other things that would make you lactose intolerant um, other than this particular thing. But that's actually one of those fascinating stories that. Actually, being able to drink milk after weaning is a mutation,
1: <laughs> right. it's a variant. It's a very it awesome mutation. It was a mutation,
0: now it's a variant because <laughs> it's such a high population. So a mutation, by definition, doesn't give you pathicity. It only says that it's held in less than 1% to 2% of the population. Got it. So a mutation isn't bad. A mutation is just it's not common.
1: Right. And then a variant is something that's changed that's hit everybody.
0: Well, a variant is a change Mm -hmm. which is different than what the standard gene, genetic genotype is. Mm -hmm. Now remember, the standard genotype is going to have variants as well. Mm -hmm. Because what's a normal genotype? Well, there is no definition of a normal genotype because we all should have variation. Mm -hmm. And so there's not really a norm. So A variation is just that's a change from the standard. It's not necessarily a dictation of what it means. A polymorphism is a known change from the standard that's greater than 5%.
1: Got it. Uh, I'm going to leave all those nerdy uh, percentages and terms for you. I'm going to stick to fish oil. But uh, so let's journey down the path. The reason that I got hooked up with you in the first place, let's start talking about this MTHFR that's taking the natural products industry by storm. Everybody is looking at it. And in fact, again, my very smart pharmacist friend said, Oh, and this case that I was working on, he had an MTHFR um, variation or, or his, his percentages weren't, yeah, whatever was going on, whatever the word was. And he said, And as a result, we were able to, you know, fix his problem, you know. And so let's talk about MTHFR, what it is, what it does. Um, You deal with uh, one of the outcomes of it in the real clinical, you know, relevant side of it. So I'll just kind of let you unpack the idea for me.
0: So I want to start out with homocysteine. Is that okay? Of course. So homocysteine is an amino acid. Uh, A lot of people think of it as being, oh, elevated homocysteine is bad. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. It's just an amino acid, right? Right. Um, And homocysteine sits in a cycle with the amino acid methionine. And if you'll remember, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And we have amino acids that are essential. These have to come from our diet. And we have our non-essential amino acids. These are things that we can build. So methionine is the essential amino acid that interacts with homocysteine. So methionine gets converted to homocysteine. And the reason it gets converted is so that we have methyl groups or a process or an ability To make methyl groups that can be used to regulate genes. Mm -hmm. Homocysteine then gets recycled back to methionine. Homocysteine can also be recycled or converted to cysteine and other amino acids and sulfates, which are also used for regulation. So, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, which is MTHFR, plays a role in methylating homocysteine to make methionine. Now, Methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, or MTHFR, is basically the thing that takes the methyl group from folate and gets it prepared to put in to the enzyme methionine synthase. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Methionine synthase also needs B12. Mm -hmm. And then it will also convert back that methyl group so MTHFR can convert it. And that's really complicated, but basically, think of MTHFR is really important for methylation Mm -hmm. and it methylates homocysteine to make methionine. Right. Right. Did you follow all of that?
1: I followed all of it because I've already done the research, but essentially wax on, wax off. We we have a, a, a very natural balance in a lot of different parts of our, our body and MTHFR is just kind of one of the things that helps, helps move this cycle along between, um, methionine and homocysteine it is pretty funny that you said that a lot of people say oh my god homocysteine's bad but you know when i was doing my clinical rotations i remember it coming up in the conversation and everybody going yeah we don't we don't know probably not we don't really care but i just remember it being like the big school thing oh my god homocysteine and then getting in clinical world and everybody's like yeah we don't know probably not
0: (laughs) and 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 part of the reason that people get really anxious about homocysteine is there's actually a disorder in which you can't convert homocysteine to cystothione and cysteine. And that disorder was described again, about 50 years ago. Um, and it's, and we call it classical homocysteineuria. Mm-hmm. Um, the technical name is ast- actually cystothione beta synthase or CBS. And what we discovered in this patient population is first of all, Normal homocysteine is usually less than about, or normal total homocysteine is usually less than about 12 to 14. These individuals will have total homocysteines greater than 300.
1: Okay. So it's a slight difference.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like 10 times. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and so this population has a number of things. They can have dislocated lenses. They can have funny growth, but the thing that gets people's attention is they develop spontaneous thrombus. They get spontaneous clots. Yeah. And so everybody's like, Oh, homocysteine is awful. Homocysteine is awful. And so they started to look and they started to look at people who got blood clots. And some of these studies looked at people with heart attacks. And what they discovered is individuals who had heart attacks had slightly elevated homo-cyst- total homocysteines within six months of having the heart attack. Well, the other thing you, it's really important to know about total homocysteine is it's an acute phase reactant. It goes up whenever you have inflammation, right? It goes up when you're sick it goes up when you're exposed to nitric oxide.
1: And that's not necessarily bad either.
0: No. Right? It it just it is what happens and if you don't have CVS deficiency or classical homocystinuria, then that's okay. Cuz you'll deal with it. You'll take it out, you'll make cysteine, you'll make methionine, you're great. Um, if you've got a problem there, you're going to accumulate it. And so that, so total homocysteine got this really bad rap because when it's elevated can mean you get thrombosis. Well, the irony is total homocysteines don't make spontaneous thrombosis until they're greater than 120 to 150 micromoles per liter. That's still a lot higher than normal. Right. Right. All right. That's, that's, That's homocysteine. So let's talk a little bit about MTHFR. So remember, MTHFR is what converts homocysteine to methionine by giving a a methyl group. Now, in individuals who have no MTHFR are very little, almost impossible to measure. Those individuals have homocysteines without therapy in the 300 to 400 range because they can't make that conversion. Um, They also have methionines that are really, really low, like normal methionine, usually, you know, above 20, less than 40. These folks have methionines like one or two. Got it. Now, if you remember way back from basic biology, the first amino acid on every single protein is methionine. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you also remember me saying, oh, methionine is really important as a methyl donor for a number of regulation things. So those low methionines are really, really concerning. And so if you have severe MTHFR, a lot of those folks will have strokes. Uh, currently, it is not screened for a newborn screen um, due to the elevated homocysteines. They also have apnea in their neonatal period and a decent percentage of them will actually have autistic-like features. Mm. Um, Now, that's, that's somebody who has no function. What we've discovered looking at things is that there's two common variants within the population for MTHFR. And what these are are they're actually polymorphisms because 30 to 60% of individuals in any given population will carry these polymorphisms. Right. And that's important
1: uh, to stress that almost all of us will have this polymorphism.
0: Right? Yeah, so 30 mm-hmm. to 60%. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, and there's two major polymorphisms. There's the 667 or 665, depending on who's doing the counting and what you're counting, and the 1298 polymorphism. Mm -hmm. And these were originally identified looking at these clotting people, and people said, oh, oh, no, no, these are going to increase people's risk for elevated homocysteines and their risk for clots. Well, what really happened was we realized that's probably not the case. So these are thermal labile. And they have basically normal function at normal body temperature and then drop their function to about 25% at 40 degrees Celsius. And so they really are only an issue when you're not normal temperature. And even then, they're probably not an issue anyways, because they can make up while you're at normal temperature. So these are the thermal labile ones. In fact, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics recommend that the variants are not tested for, they're not screened for, they should not be utilized to work up for individuals with thrombosis or checked at all. If they are checked and somebody's a homozygous for either one of these, a total homocysteine should be checked. And the reason a total homocysteine should be checked is because if you are folate deficient, you actually could have a slightly elevated total homocysteine. But these total homocysteines, the elevations, never reach the 120, 150 micromole per liter numbers, which would give you a spontaneous thrombosis all by itself.
1: Right. So all of that is crucial for everybody to hear that's like on the fence about this stuff. So these This is a real condition, and we're not taking that away from anybody. This is a real condition that's really horrible. The problem is, from my perspective, is that it's being misused and mischaracterized to sell crappy supplements and a mindset that there's something wrong with you when there isn't. And again, 30
0: to 60% of the population has it. Please don't blame your common variant MTHFR on your problems. Please get the rest of it worked up. Right. Because there could be something else that we could do something about. But if you say, ah, it's this, Mm -hmm. then you're ignoring
1: all the other things, that all the other possibilities. So let's, let's kind of like play devil's advocate from the perspective of, uh, I'm a patient and I've, I fell for it. You know, I got the test done and it says I have one or both of those things. Mm-hmm. And so if I wanted to know if I have anything that could be a problem, the best thing would be to check the homocysteine levels, correct?
0: Yeah, I just get a total homocysteine. If it's up, then I, would give, then I would take folate. Now, notice I'm just saying folate. I'm not saying folinic acid or methyl folate at this point. I'm just saying folate. Because if you have mm-hmm. one of the common variants, you can deal with folate fine. If you have the severe disease where you have no enzyme activity, and trust me, you would have presented early, early, um, you have symptoms um, significant ones, then, um, there's a slightly different recommendation, but if you have the thermal label forms, folate is fine.
1: Right. So let's, there, I'm just going to hang out there for just one second. The idea of being able to have this be a problem in adulthood right? Mm-hmm. So people are getting this test done now and they're saying, I have this severe MTHFR thing that's clinically relevant. Just the the notion of that is incorrect, right?
0: Correct. So I have people that call and they say, I have MTHFR and I, what goes through my brain is um, you're calling me. You do not have severe <laughs> MTHFR right? because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do this. You would have had significant symptoms as in intellectual disability strokes as a neonate metabolic decompensation like we would know i mean yeah
1: i mean isn't it something like 50 cases a year or some silly like small amount or is it more prevalent than that
0: um i'm not sure it's quite that low but i would say we're talking um a hundred to 200 cases in the United States at the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have a fairly big, uh, practice for this and for severe MTHFR, I think we have five or six patients mm. ranging from the ages of about three to about 40. Got it. So it's fairly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, they, frankly, there are some things that are more common that can look like uh, severe MTHFR.
1: Go ahead. Let's, let's hear them.
0: So, um, so one of them is actually uh, some of the ability, some of the cobalamin deficiencies.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: cobalamin is B12. hmm You have to take E in and you have to process it so that different enzymes can work. hmm and i mentioned this back a little bit but that methionine synthase that does the actual conversion of homocysteine to methionine and uses mthfr that's a b12 responsive enzyme and so you need b12 for that enzyme to work and you need that b12 to be processed into a very specific form of b12 called methylcobalamin and there are a number of uh, enzymes that do that processing about 10ish we label them. We call them cobalamin A, cobalamin B, C, D, just because we wanted to make it complicated for us all. <laughs> right. So these folks aren't really B twelve deficient. They actually are B twelve processing deficient. Right. Um, but individuals that have cobalamin G and cobalamin E, which are two of these forms, look very much like an MTHFR. Um, they can present a little bit later in life. Um, but they can have many of the same symptoms. And that's a B12
1: problem. But, but even, even this, like what you're saying is all great. Well, one little pearl, I was actually an expert witness on a cyanide poisoning uh, case. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I got to tell the grand jury that we take cyanide every time we take a B12 supplement because of the cyanocobalamin, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to the idea that you know, mercury in flu shots is going to kill you even though it's thimerosal cyanide and your b12 you know whatever so so that was just my little example but the the idea that you're saying that it could present as mthFR you're talking about the real clinically relevant the real MTHFR. clinical right the real so,
0: clinical severe severe mthFR you're
1: not talking about somebody who's depressed somebody that has no. that has stuff that they need addressed mm-hmm. that that they're having difficulty managing and such and and they don't feel good that's a real problem but mthFR doesn't present like that I think it's great that MTHFR looks like mother effer, you know, so I just like to say that like Samuel L. Jackson all the time.
0: I actually use use it a little bit when I remind people what that enzyme complex is.
1: Um, <laughs> it's a mother effer. Yes, I get it. So
0: let's try, so common variant MTHFR, there's a lot on the internet about diseases it causes. I think it's really important to look at the sources that they're actually referencing because they do say, oh, in this research study, so there's this and this and this. Um, There are individuals in which their comment MTHFR can put them at risk for other things if they have other things. Right. Right. Um, And so you were talking about like depression and fatigue and depression in some ways. So there's interesting studies out of psych psychiatric, um, out of the psychiatric literature in which, so folate has to be transported in the brain. And there's a real disease called primary folate, f- um, cerebral folate deficiency in which the folate isn't transported. And people with primary disease actually have genetic causes that lead to primary disease. There's also a known secondary, um, folate deficiency in which you can see individuals um not have adequate folate in their brain this is often um in relation and they present with severe depression and so some of the some of the methyl folate stuff with severe depression the people that have been identified to have this have untreatable depression by any other method and in fact they have undergone um uh, Lumber punctures to identify that they have full a uh, five folate uh, Deficiency right. um, I would say that general run-of-the-mill depression is not this population But if you see that literature that is kind of one of those interesting things to keep in mind So somebody that looks at me and says oh, I took my methyl folate and I feel much better Always makes me think ah well you have secondary cerebral
1: folate deficiency. Okay, so yeah, I mean Here's the thing. At the end of the day, it's not always the medicine. It's the spoon, right? So sometimes just the act of getting something done will either make people feel better or actually uncover something else. So can we lend any credence to the idea of testing for MTHFR and looking at MTHFR and folic acid status and and homocysteine and that? Or do you feel like that is just kind of a smoke screen? And I, I feel it's a repackaging of just like how to sell B vitamins to people. But.
0: I, I actually really detest people that uh, look at MTHFR variants. Really? Because when we start, uh, and, and the reason I detest it is because why give someone a disease when we know that 30 to 60% of the population has it? Right. And so all of a sudden I'm putting a label that makes someone abnormal when half the population may actually have that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it becomes a really lazy way to not look for things when you actually could find something you could treat. Right. And it's really important. 30 to 60% of any given population will have, uh, will have either be a carrier homozygote for the
1: variations. Right. I mean, you bring up a great point because I do, wellness consultations all day long, right? And of the people that come to me after seeing a practitioner that suggested MTHFR, there is literally a laundry list of things that are going wrong with their their holistic care, we can say, with your lifestyle choices and their medication regimens and way too many supplements that can all be corrected, that probably are contributing to how they feel, along with you know, the, the mental health stuff that i make that part of the lifestyle stuff, but there is, you know, severe anxiety and depression that could be treated that isn't caused by MTHFR, but could be addressed from a real practitioner. They're not eating correctly. They're, you know, they're taking the wrong things that are stimulants at times. So yeah, I agree with you. I I kind of, you know, obviously I detest, this This is why I have a geneticist on my podcast to, to talk about how bad I freaking hate this whole thing. And so here's the one, let's switch from. I think I'm done with MTHFR. We might come back to it, but the, I want to talk about Alzheimer's because Mm -hmm. a lot of people are really hanging on these genetic tests that are getting done Mm -hmm. around it. So can you, can you give me your opinion on that and your professional opinion, I should say?
0: So, uh, um, I, I assume that you're talking about the non-familial forms of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So there's genetic risks that are true familial forms. And uh, for people who have a significant family history, sometimes knowing that early in life to make decisions is good. But in general, I think that, um, you know, remember Alzheimer's is a patholo- a pathologic after death diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, dementia is the phenotype, right? So we have dementia. Um, I'm going I'm to use an example. This is going to come out of cancer, and this is kind of how I think of that testing. Now 25 or 30 years ago, they took a cohort of individuals, and this is r- right when they identified the genetic risk, the genetic risk, for uh inherited breast cancer and they just identified the brca1 gene which is one of the breast cancer genes and they went to these family gatherings in which you had a very large risk to develop breast cancer and we can talk about what that really means but in these families it was very penetrant you saw lots of it Mm -hmm. and they offered these families this testing and they knew that the genetic change was within the family because there was an end And it's interesting how people think about that. So a third of those individuals did not want to be tested at all. And they did not want to be tested because they didn't think it would make a difference. A third of those individuals were, uh, requested that their test results be given to their doctor only. They didn't want the results. And a third of those individuals wanted the results. No matter what the results were,
1: mm-hmm. a
0: third of individuals were disappointed, a third were ambivalent, and a third were happy about the results. Notice whether you tested positive or not. Right. A third. So when we talk about Alzheimer's testing, the first thing is not everybody wants to know that piece of information the second thing is not everybody who has markers to develop alzheimers will develop alzheimers
1: i think that that's a big piece right i mean people should be hanging on to that idea the idea that you have a genetic variant or something there doesn't that doesn't mean that your destiny is sealed
0: yeah and so and so the question is if you test positive for the risk will that impact your life and will you be disappointed no matter what your choices were so for example if you test positive and you're younger in age, does that alter your choices in terms of reproduction? Does that alter your choices in terms of job? Does that alter your choices in how you approach life in general? Mm-hmm. And if it's going to change that, would you be disappointed if you didn't develop Alzheimer's? Right. Right?
1: Uh, I would hope that you wouldn't be disappointed I would be happy, right? Uh, well, yeah, the but, but,
0: but, oh, but yeah, if you said I'm not going to have
1: kids and then I don't get Alzheimer's, I get it. I understand. What
0: yeah. You're and if you don't test, so if you don't test for your familial risk, risk factor, remember you could still develop
1: dementia. Of course. If you don't have that risk genetically, it doesn't mean that you, you still couldn't get it from the myriad reasons. Right.
0: And, and you don't have that risk genetically for what we looked at.
1: Right. Because we're not looking at the complete picture because we can only look at 4,000 genes.
0: Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's one of the, the scary things when we start talking about doing adult onset disorders. In fact, currently, if I were to look at those, if I have a young child who has a disorder disorder, uh, so has a genetic disorder in terms of phenotype. Let's say they have, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, a heart difference. They have colobomas in their eyes and they have six fingers and I'm just making it up. And so 10
1: or six on one hand.
0: Six on one hand. So 12 okay. total fingers. Okay, got it. I'm, and I'm totally making up this case.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I sit here and I'm like, oh, the possibilities of what this could be are so big that I want to look at the coding region for these 4,000 genes and only the coding regions. And that's called a whole exome study. So I'm going to do a whole exome on this child who's, let's say six months old. And the reason I want to do this testing is because I want to, be able to predict what I need to screen for in the future, and I want to know whether or not there's any other risk if we have to surgically intervene. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so we sit down, we counsel the family about doing this, and I'm looking at four thousand genes. Well, whenever you look at four thousand genes, you're at risk to identifying other things, and. The American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics has a list of incidental findings that you can find. And most of these things are like uh, the risk for heart rhythm abnormalities and the risk for cancers that present young. What's interesting is the things that they will never report are adult neurologic disease or neurologic diseases that present in adulthood, even though they have the data that are untreatable at this time. hmm. So we won't even tell you what those results are if somebody's less than 18. And in fact, if you have that test, we won't tell you if you're older than 18 either. You have to look specifically for those things because one, why do a test if you have no therapy?
1: Amen. That's exactly (laughs) what I was going to throw in there. I teach people all the time. The test only matters if you're going to alter your behavior or treatment, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The idea of... My grandfather is a classic example. He would test his blood sugar like five or six times a day, but then he would still eat like full pies, right? His blood sugar was constantly (laughs) around 400. What is the point of testing your blood sugar if you're really not going to adjust your either your diet? I mean, he'd be adjusting his insulin levels, of course, but like if if you're not going to use that information, people that even they get pre-diabetes and they're testing occasionally, you know, like. If you're not going to then change your diet to, you know, use that information to inform something else, the test is kind of irrelevant, right?
0: You know, don't look if that's not a piece of information that you need to make a decision.
1: Right. And when it comes to this Alzheimer's piece... Like, wouldn't it make more sense that eat the mind diet that it shows a 40% risk reduction because it's managing hypertension? Doesn't it make more sense to have the, the clean fatty fish every single day? Because if you know, or you don't know whether that genetic predisposition is there, the action should be the same, which is clean up your diet, exercise, do all the things you're supposed to do.
0: Well, and you know, you should be eating a healthy diet no matter what, right? You should be exercising. No matter what. Right. And, and the irony is there is some evidence that those results from recreational genetics does not impact the greater number of individuals' lifestyle changes.
1: Right. Just having that information you figure would motivate and be the straw that breaks the camel's back, and it is not.
0: And to be a devil's advocate, but for some people that information they find very, very useful, if nothing else, then it makes them
1: less anxious. Right. So then they know, and then they can just make their plan. And that's what I find with a lot of people when they're on their wellness journey is is that they just want some sort of a diagnosis, so they can know what's wrong, so that way they can address it. When you have something that's that like the things that MTHFR um, therapies propose to treat, it's very you know ambiguous. There's there's all these kind of non-specific symptoms that people just don't know why they're having it, and the reason they're having it is a multitude of reasons. And that's a lot harder to deal with than I have this one thing and I'm going to do this specific plan, whether it costs me hundreds of dollars or not, but at least I have a plan and I can do something. And so people have to understand that sometimes it's not that crystal clear. We've been trained to that behavior, but that's not really uh, what's needed in most situations.
0: And I think, you know, in individuals that are looking for a diagnosis to describe there many symptoms i think what most people just want to be is believed that they have the symptoms and to be heard when they state those symptoms right cuz we spend a lot of time in individuals who were pretty comfortable have known genetic disorders from single mendelian genetics we can't find them we are pretty comfortable there's something there. But for them, yes, the, the diagnostic odyssey is too long and too complicated and very frustrating. But for many of them, just being heard and being believed right. are two of the most important things. And, and perhaps if we just believe a little bit more, we'd be better off.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, my last question was going to be, why do you think that MTHFR is being talked about so much? And I think it's because it's another mechanism for these people to feel heard. And, and what I've said for a while is that uh, conventional medical practitioners have lost the respect, trust, and the leadership. That's required to do holistic care the right way because we've been so dismissive of it. We haven't. We don't have time to listen to our patients. We don't know how to help them manage these diseases. So out comes this crop of people that are offering solutions and are are at least listening. You know, because you know, again, if you get a thousand bucks for a consult and some supplements, you're gonna listen. I'll I'll sleep in your house. Are you kidding me? I'll, I'll slap food out of your mouth for that money. You know.
0: Well, they also get reimbursed for it. Right right? Because you pay for the supplements. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm very lucky. I'm a geneticist and metabolist. I get a lot of time with each of my patients because they're complicated, but like the, the requirements to practice medical care now, um, is a push to see more patients. And, um, you know, I, I, we do electronic medical records and they actually take longer than you would think um Mm -hmm. and so it's harder to listen to somebody when i've got to do all these things so that maybe i will get paid and i'm a geneticist so i don't really get paid well Um, (laughs) because we just don't get reimbursed for the time that we spend but like a primary care doc just doesn't you know you've got to see x number of patients x fast. And I've got several siblings that are physicians and I just, I can't imagine being a pediatrician, having 15 minutes per patient. I just can't given the list of the things you've got to cover.
1: So thank you for Spending time with me, like I said in the emails, I think you're going to be my new best friend. So uh, you're going to have to deal with me now. Um, But is there something positive we can leave off on? Because I feel like we just really beat the crap out of this thing.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? I think that the advantage of... This being kind of a hot topic
1: mm-hmm. is I'm
0: hoping that people will really start thinking about the supplements that they're taking and thinking about how do I do this with a healthy diet, not necessarily with uh, supplements which I consider meds or drugs.
1: Yeah um, agreed.
0: And I'm also hoping that people will seek health care um, because maybe we can do a better job of taking care of them. Um, and you know, they're curious about genetics. That's a beautiful thing when you're a geneticist, yes. Um, because there's lots of things to learn, and every single one of my patient teaches me something new. And so that's a wonderful place to be.
1: Well put. I'm glad we can go out on a high note instead of being negative, Neely, like always. So thank you so much for coming no on problem. and talking about this complex issue.
0: Thank you so much.
1: All right, so I think we should just rename this segment from Neil's Unhealthy Habits to Neil Over Eight because <laughs> that's really all that goes on here. My unhealthy habit is my willingness to just throw food in my mouth like I have a gullet. If there's food around, especially really good or really bad stuff, I'm like a tick hanging out on your skin for a few days, three times my size, just barely hanging on, right? So I told you last week that I was headed to Vegas and what a horrible idea that was. I, I literally just got back. High calorie drinks, good meals, in and out burger, you know what else was I expecting from Las Vegas? I don't gamble, so I just eat. That's how I give away money to the casinos. I mean, we did walk like thirty miles in three days, and if you've never been, Las Vegas is a literal black hole, not in like the idea that you're gonna lose all your money and it's just like it's just this weird i've I've never been anywhere like it, not just from the like degenerate standpoint you know oh we're gambling and we can smoke and we can do all this crazy stuff drinking the street drinking is is a very common thing but there's a real skewing of reality that happens for some reason i have no idea what's going on first off like the distances everything appears close but these casinos are massive right they're built on the losses of all the people like us right so they're there're these gigantic gold-plated buildings, and it just screws your scale up. You're like, oh, I'll just walk to the next casino. And they're like two miles apart from each other. And then just getting from our room to the street was about six-tenths of a mile. So if you do want to go to a casino, it's like two miles and then a half mile to get into the place. (laughs) And then like time just goes to a halt. I I don't know if it's the lighting or the carpets or whatever tricks they're using. Time just slows down to like nothing. I felt like I was there for three months our last day, for example, we got like five hours sleep. So we go to bed at two in the morning. We wake up at 7am. We feel refreshed, which is weird. And then we walk four miles to go check out casinos. We walk into a bunch of them and then we started to get that little pang of hunger, but I don't really think it was hunger. It was just the fact that we weren't full for a second and it was only 1030 in the morning, right? We did, we skip breakfast. We did what any good American would do. And we got an in and out burger. Yeah, man, if you haven't had that stuff, it is totally gross, but it's awesome especially in Las Vegas. So we're now stuffed to the brim. We walked two more miles back, took a brief nap, like an hour, and then we packed. And then we hit old Vegas, which seemed like a full eight-hour day, but we were only there for like two hours. We headed back to our hotel for a nice dinner. We had a nice little setup on the Bellagio Fountain. We were left there at nine, so it was like a -a two-and-a-half-hour dinner, so a longer dinner. And then we've been up now for 14 freaking hours, and now we're heading to the airport to wait until midnight when our flight left, four hours on a plane, three hours driving back from JFK. That felt like a full week and it was barely 24 hours. And that's all Las Vegas is. So that's me rambling on and on and on. If it makes you feel like you're in an inception. Like I'm in a dream in a dream, and Leo DiCaprio is gonna wake up on the beach with me and we're gonna have to go find the old man, you know? Like that's what's going on there. There's barely an opportunity to be hungry. I had no business eating two of the three meals that I ate every day, which was weird is that I was eating very minimally. We just had maybe two meals a day, maybe a coffee in the morning and then lunch and dinner. And that was it. But I just felt full, right? So what's the point of all of this? First, don't go to Vegas, right? (laughs) The second thing is, you know, we've already talked about how to adjust from overeating in a past episode. So you know that I'm doing this, like I'm shaving it back quite a bit, like I'm eating salads and and light stuff right now, Um, cutting my calories down for the next few days to make up for the engorgement that happened before. But here's a pearl you can take away from this, because before Vegas, I obviously I sounded less enthused than I do right now, but essentially like I was stress eating right and i'm trying to build a new reflex via mindfulness my business coach gave me this tip he's he's like whenever he's craving sweets due to stress he, he's like i've got to wake up from that and realize that that's the signal to then go the opposite way swing that pendulum completely to the other side and just eat like carrots you know eat something very simple very bland but very very healthy and it totally shook my world i'm like wow that's actually a great response so now when i'm getting that urge to do whatever It's celery, right? A big old salad. Not even putting meat on the salad, just nuts and going very plant-based, just to get the idea of sweet out of my system. And I'm like eating it, kind of like Dumbledore in that one scene in the last Harry Potter movie where he's like, no, no, and he's just drinking the stuff. Like, that's what I feel like I'm doing. But eventually, I level out and those cravings go away and they go away pretty permanently too. So once you've kind of fed the demon, it just gets worse and worse. So with this, you're just completely aborting that whole sequence. So... All I'm saying is if you get those impulses to eat unhealthy, just be mindful of them and don't give in. Just take it a signal as your body needs a much more healthier option and start cramming those in despite your brain's protest. So that's it. I just want to stress here again that MTHFR deficiencies are real and they are serious. So I'm not saying that MTHFR isn't a real problem for those critics of my criticism. MTHFR, though, is almost definitely not the cause of your problems. So save money on the specialists and just get yourself a decent B-complex if you want to hedge your bets. Even the most sophisticated formulas like our coenzyme B-complex, it's made for this kind of thing, right? And it's more than enough. You're getting plenty of the different ingredients in the right forms, and it's only 8 bucks a month, right? You don't have the risk then of overdose like the other practitioners' recommendations can put you at risk for. So that's it for this week. If you want to reach out to Dr. Chapman, you can send her a note at kchapman at childrensnational.org. That's K-C-H-A-P-M-A-N at childrensnational.org. Check out the show notes for links to the Children's National Rare Disease Institute. And so here's to another great year podcasting. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so very much. It's been a lot of fun doing this, and I can't wait to get another year under a belt. So until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.